Touchdowns, first downs, blocking, tackles. These are words that everyone familiar with football in the United States will recognize. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, dementia, memory loss, depression. These are words that recently have been connected to playing football. The emergence of the story connecting football with brain injury is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. Joining me on the panel today is Richard Campbell, Chair of the Department of Media, Journalism, and Film. Today's guest is Alan Schwartz. While working as a journalist for the New York Times, Alan wrote a series of articles on concussions in football, and this was credited with helping to revolutionize the treatment of head injuries and exposing the seriousness in them for the athletes. We are delighted to have Alan Schwartz joining us on today's episode of Stats and Stories. Alan, when did you first realize that there might be a story connecting football and brain injury? Well, I got a tip from a friend of a friend. I had been a baseball writer for 16 years exclusively, a very statistics-oriented one. I wrote a book on the history of baseball statistics, and I wrote a column about sports analytics for the New York Times. But a friend of mine uh, had a friend who had done a lot of research into the concussion area and felt as if there were a serious problem in the National Football League all the way down to youth football that was being, for lack of a better verb, covered up by the National Football League. And he asked me to look at some of the evidence that he had and some of the evidence that was emerging at that time. And as a very proud card-carrying math geek, I looked at the numbers and, in fact, they really did have a problem. Uh, It was quite clear that there was a problem to anyone who understood basic statistics. At that time, I seemed to have been the only one, and I ran with it. I brought it to the Times. They let me run uh, a couple of stories, and all hell broke loose with uh, the problem of brain injuries and concussions and later life cognitive uh, decline and dementia in football players. This is Richard uh, Allen. What kind of pushback did you get? initially, and what kind of challenges did a story like this pose for you? Well, as I said, I was a baseball guy, and so I had no particular street cred when it came to football. Now, a lot of people think that that benefited me, Mm -hmm. because I had no relationships to lose. Uh, I had no press passes to protect. Mm -hmm. I just wrote what I knew to be true. And did I get pushed? Yeah, I guess I did. You you know, I was so in the trenches that you kind of turn off a lot of that outside stuff. But, well, the National Football League certainly went on a campaign to say that Schwartz doesn't know what he's talking about. What could he know? He's just a math geek. You know, I mean, they didn't use those words, but Mm -hmm. they certainly uh, claimed I had no credibility whatsoever. And when the rest of the football press didn't follow up on anything, I was really kind of a lone wolf. Now, the fact that I worked for the New York Times gave me all the cred that I needed. But I really was the only person who could look at the data, which was incredibly simple to anyone who probably is listening to this broadcast. But among sports writers, I was really the only math guy. I have a math degree from the University of Pennsylvania, and I have a library full of books on probability. And I knew how to look at the data, and it was quite clear that there was a serious problem with dementia and other issues among retired players. And I held on to that belief 
more than belief, just knowledge, until I proved it to the public's satisfaction. So can you talk a little bit about the, the data that you had initially? Uh, you know, what was, what was the compelling data that, that led this, that gave you the kind of the real strength of, of, uh, of interest in this story and, and led you to, to push this forward? To be honest, it was a very basic probability problem, something from Stats 101 in many ways. Basically, what we were told was that a, a disease that is caused only or is known to be caused only by repetitive head trauma, chronic head trauma, called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. We were told is incredibly rare in the general population. I mean, at most, one out of a thousand, okay? Well, the first four men, they could only be diagnosed after death, and the first four men who died and were examined for it had the disease. Now, it was not a random sample of players, okay, of former players. No one could possibly say that. However, 4,000 to 1 shots coming up in a row is pretty darn significant. It makes you question the hypothesis of whether it should be 1 out of 1,000. <laughs> it looks like, hmm, there's something different about this population. They're not just the general population. Something has happened to them, which is to say repetitive head trauma. Well, the National Football League and its hired doctors and, and frankly, a lot of people who, who were so-called independents who should have darned well known better said, hey, it's just four guys. You can't make any statements about a population as, as big as, as former football players, which is about 13,000 at the time. Uh, you can't base statements on f only four guys. You don't know the denominator. And I'm like, I don't need to know the denominator because... We're four out of four for a thousand to one shot. <laughs> and again, they're not, it's not a random sample. But nonetheless, no matter how you look at the numbers, it isn't a thousand to one in these guys. It's obviously a lot higher. There is an increased risk for this disease than in the general population, which is a pretty basic concept, particularly when you're talking about repetitive head trauma and football. But an awful lot of folks did not find this very compelling. They said Schwartz is just a sports writer. You know, you, you, he's, he doesn't know anything. He's not a neurosurgeon. What could he know? It's like, well, he knows very basic conditional and Bayesian probability. And there's a problem here, and it's being covered up. In, in your study of this, how – and it's been a while since I've read the series uh, – did the National Football League know about this before you, you started doing this? Had they worried about this, or was this something that seemed to be a surprise to them? Well, to be honest, there's two different issues. There was the issue of concussions and the long-term effects of and dangers of repetitive concussions, which are a specific type of head trauma. Now, that has been something that has captured the NFL's attention for decades. And, of course, there's a point of contention over when did they become concerned about it, how concerned should they have been. But certainly starting in 1994, when they hired some doctors to look into the issue and conduct so-called studies on, on the matter, uh, they clearly had a great interest in, in the possible long-term effects of concussions. After that work was done... Um, in, in 2004, 5, and 6, the NFL and its committee said that actually concussions have no long-term effects at all. So, oh. yay for us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, 
um, in the, it, around the same time, the first two men, uh, retired players, were just diagnosed with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a very specific degenerative disease that you can diagnose only after death. Um, and the NFL became aware of these findings and discredited them as much as they possibly could. The movie Concussion is about that mm -hmm. early effort to suppress that early evidence. It was before I showed up. Uh, I showed up when the third man was diagnosed, um, Andre Waters, a defensive back for the Philadelphia Eagles, and that was in January of 2007. Uh, and because it was now three out of three, no one had come up negative. All three were positive, and even though it's not a random sample, we can still question the hypothesis that it's one out of a thousand. Um, you know, then the fourth guy, four out of four, and I literally stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with the commissioner during an interview. And I said, you know, it's four out of four for a very, supposedly very rare condition in your players. And he's like, I don't, you know, he just did not find that compelling. It's just four guys. What could you possibly know? Mm -hmm. And um, again, anyone listening to this podcast is thinking like, duh. <laughs> but I was, I mean, I was the only one who understood the numbers and could read the scientific studies and see the clues that evidence was being covered up, at, at, at best misunderstood, mm -hmm. and at worst covered up. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. The topic today, concussions in football. I'm John Baylor, Miami University Statistics Department Chair, and joining me is Media, Journalism, and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. Our special guest is Alan Schwartz. Now, Alan, you've covered a lot of different stories that have a data foundation, including baseball reporting, concussions in sports, and public health. What are some of the skills that you've needed to make sense of the data that have served as the basis of these stories? You've told us a little bit about probability, and, and in essence, the, the calculations that you were doing here were saying, assuming that each of these people had the same risk of this, of, of CTE, and you know, and assuming that they're independent in their responses, how rare is this result? So do you believe that something unusual is happening and their rate's different, or do you believe that, that something, you know, incredibly unusual has happened and that just just life. So you, you use some probability calculations and thinking, but I'm just thinking about what other what other kind of skills? Well, I think it's a skepticism for numbers and what numbers say and what numbers don't say. In fact, you know, it's my opinion that really taking another step back is that numbers don't mean anything. Numbers mean only uh, mean something only after human beings put words around them. And so it was when people were saying, well, it's only four players. Well, only matched with four. It, it, those are the, the dance between numbers and words, okay? And, and, and the tendency for human beings to either misunderstand or misuse those numbers and those words is just something I have a very good ear for. Uh, and so... I can tell when someone misuses million and billion instantly. Uh, mm -hmm. I can tell when, uh, when I, I guess it's, it's hard for me to just explain off the top of my head, but I just, I understand how numbers work and the way a lot of people listening to this podcast do. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, you know, Ramanujan. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I, I think though that 
I mean, there's no question that the book that changed my life was Innumeracy by John mm -hmm. Allen Paulos, yeah. which I read while I was in college. He was a Temple University professor. I was at Penn. And it just helped you look at the world really through more of a probabilistic lens, where if something happens and you're told that it's random, well, what are the chances that it was random? And what are the chances that there's something different than you're being told? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, something is as easy as a pair of dice. I mean, obviously, if you roll a pair of dice, well, let me give you a perfect example from the election. Okay, I'm on the editorial board of Significance Magazine okay. from the, from uh, from ASA, or I guess it's Royal Statistical Society. Um, and we were doing an article on the recent election and how, as we all know, the pundits, uh, up to and including 538, were saying that there was 70, 75, 80% chance that, um, that Trump would win, uh, that Clinton would win, and that there was only, obviously, a 20, 25% chance that Trump would win. Well, the article we were considering and we were editing said that the, that the people who predicted it got it wrong. Everybody, you know, everyone went bananas. Oh, my God, they got it wrong. Oh, my God, how could they have been so irresponsible? And there's a part of me that's saying, hey, if we rolled a die and you asked me, is it going to come up one, two, three, or four, or five or six, which one am I going to bet on? I'm going to bet on one, two, three, or four. If it comes up five, it doesn't mean I got it wrong. It means that the, just something unlikely happened. And... So I think we just need to, uh, I want to wrap it up. I'm not doing a great job answering your question, <laughs> but, but I think it's incredibly important to know that numbers, like I said, num numbers don't lie. People lie with numbers. Mm -hmm. And when you have enough experience seeing it, you can start diagnosing it outside. You know, we had your colleague, Nick Kristoff, here a few years ago, and uh, he was asking about our journalism program. And one of the things that he said is, and I'm, I'm uh, paraphrasing him here, but one is he said, he said at the New York Times, we have a lot of very smart reporters, very smart editors, but we have a lot of people that don't know very much about numbers and data. And he said, if you do anything in a journalism program, you know, you need to be focusing more on data and numbers and, and helping people uh, write stories that explain those. Now, do you find this is still true at the New York Times? <laughs> Talk about some of the things that you think journalists get wrong. There are a lot of, I mean, a lot of this is there aren't very many journalists that were math majors, first of all. So it makes you unusual in that way. Yeah, I would say that it's it's mixed at the times now i i left the times last august and right. so I, I don't want to misrepresent anything but i did find that in areas uh there there was great data sophistication okay we have a department that's a sort of data centric department that would vet things and look at databases and do incredible work uh, almost forensic work. For example, they were the ones who went through all of the WikiLeaks uh, mm -hmm. cables to find patterns, to find things, because you had like eight bazillion pages of stuff right. um, and did incredible work there. Uh, and then you also have the Upshot and the folks who run that. David Leonhardt did it for mm -hmm. a long time. Um, very sophisticated folks. 
I, I found that that sophistication would generally lie only in those departments. Mm -hmm. In other departments, there were uh, folks who did not have the instinct for numbers that, that I did and others do. Um, and in fact, they, they had, I think, even some reluctance mm -hmm. to, to trust what, for example, I knew about the significance of some of the numbers I would come across or the insignificance of numbers in press releases that were, were just wrong. Um, and I got a lot of pushback, frankly, uh, and it was rather dispiriting. Uh, so you, it, it's, it's diff different people. Mm -hmm. uh, the, different people have views of it. I would say that institutionally, the Times is desperately concerned with getting it right, with being very good at everything. Mm -hmm. I think when you get down to the more granular, granular level of human beings, uh, they have different levels of, of sophistication and trust for numbers that, uh, you know, the sports department trusted me implicitly uh, with, the, with the concussion stuff. Bill Keller, the executive editor, Jill Abramson, the managing editor, said, you know what? This guy looks like he knows what he's talking about. He's got a tra great track record. We're going to back him, even if, you know, we don't exactly know what he's saying. <laughs> um, and it was wonderful. Uh, but it was a little spotty at times. I'm hearing the the, the uh, sense that a, a promotion of numeracy is is critical in in the, the the journalists of the of tomorrow. And I also wonder about the 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 numeracy of of the public. You know, when when you're making the case and telling the story about the the rarity of the result. You know, your you know your your four cases where each one one was if if the background the base base rate was still true of one in a thousand. You're making this argument based on this probabilistic. Uh, foundation. How, how hard was it to try to tell that story for a general, a general readership? I'd say that I did less sort of proving what the numbers meant uh, in my general stories because it, it wasn't going to work. Yeah. Uh, it, it wasn't, you know, for the layman. It just, I believe that in the right context, I could have done that just fine. But explaining the probability, you know, Bayesian probability and blah, blah, blah is not really going to go very far. I think what you do is it's more of a back-end trust among the journalistic operation that, okay, look, Schwartz is right. The, there is a heightened risk for football players. So how are we going to, going to go about reporting that, proving it, allowing experts to, to muse on it and maybe even debate it? Uh, although, how much debate can you have over somebody's contention that 2 plus 2 equals 5, which is what the NFL's approach was, which, as we know, is not true except for extremely high values of 2. <laughs> um, but I think that what you do is you put a face on it, okay? Mm -hmm. And when you're trying to illustrate that there's a heightened risk for these problems among retired football players, you, you put a face on it in the sense that you profile the player, you profile uh, the... Uh, the wife who has to deal with it. Um, and you don't do it in a misleading or, or I, I guess, manipulative sense. You just go into it with the confidence that what you're doing is fair. Okay? Mm. Um, because if there was no heightened risk, well, if you start focusing on the guys with problems, it's misrepresenting what the true risk is if they're just the general population. So, uh, it was more of a back-end confidence, uh, and, but also I had the ability to read the scientific studies and, and to diagnose when they were bad and you know, either poorly done, didn't carry the one in a very important spot, perhaps intentionally, uh, 
um, conclusions were wrong or the good ones. And so, you know, the only thing that I would do when it came to the numbers is when, for example, the number two man, the guy just under Roger Goodell at the NFL, when he said, hey, you know, Alan, you're focusing on the small number of guys who have had these problems. You know, there are thousands and thousands of players who never get dementia at all, which is true. I mean, he's not lying, but what? that's not the point when it comes to epidemiology. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of people who smoke and don't get lung cancer, but that doesn't, you know, that's not the point, sure. buddy. And so you have to go out and find an expert who will say that, but you can, it's, it's the facility that I had with the numbers allowed me to sort of synthesize all the experts' opinions into something that made sense rather than my not picking up on the fact that the NFL was lying, you know, to start. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and our discussion today focuses on reporting on sports-related concussions and other stories that have a strong foundation in data. Our guest is journalist Alan Schwartz, recipient of the ASA Excellence in Statistical Reporting Award in 2013, who produced a multi-year series of articles exposing the impact of sports-related concussions. Alan, did you have people trying to argue with you about the interpretation of the data or the analyses? I mean, you, you mentioned kind of the small number of, of cases that were the, the, found, the, the foundation of your story, but, but beyond that, were there, were there other arguments about analyses that you had done? Well, I'm not sure. Um, honestly, I, there were, there was so much about the basic stuff that I, I don't even remember their concerns about the more sophisticated stuff. Uh, you know, there, there were chairmen of departments at university, at universities like Johns Hopkins who would argue with me that I was wrong, that, you know, it's only four guys. You can't make any – you don't know the denominator, this guy told me over and over and over. And I'm like, you don't need to know the denominator because the numerator is too high already. Um, and so most people did not see the, the back-end work that I was doing that gave me the confidence and that sort of was my flashlight in the cave. That's what the numbers were to me. It helped me find the things inside the cave, but I didn't talk much about the flashlight. So, for example, when a study came out showing the rates of dementia among NFL players, a study that was done at the University of Michigan, uh, which had been commissioned by, of all folks, the National Football League, and it found the rates of dementia among retired players to be between five and 19 times that of the national mm -hmm. population. It, you know, a lot of people dismissed it as, well, it's just a phone survey. But I actually had <laughs> done the work ahead of time to mm -hmm. predict this result and yeah. to understand where it came from and why it came out the way it did. So the NFL couldn't brush it aside with me because I already knew the significance of that result and had, in fact, predicted it almost perfectly in a meeting among editors at the Times to keep me moving on the story. Uh, most, you know, nobody knows that, nobody needs to know that. Um, but again, I think that when, you come, when it comes to journalism and the numeracy of journalists, you really have two different types. You have the types who aren't gonna just make a mistake in a story by misunderstanding 
you know, a number or, or misstating a concept, um, you know, that's almost mistakes of the layman. I think what you also want to have is the talents of an expert or at mm. least an enthusiast who can find out good stories to do rather than avoiding annoying mistakes. Um, and that takes a long time. Uh, it's, it's, it takes a long time and it is a, a weird mix of being both numerate and literate. I mean, the way I sort of describe it is I'm a, I'm a good mathematician for a writer and a good writer for a mathematician. <laughs> Very good. Hey, let, let me ask you about, you know, something's changed over the last few months. And I think we're, we're dealing with an administration that sort of heightened this notion of denying facts, data deniers. Uh, I think this puts a special obligation on journalists who normally, you know, do their reporting and try to take a neutral stance, try to stay out of it. We've used this term objectivity. Do you feel like it's time for journalists to fight back? We're seeing a little bit of that, uh, just in terms of this, this overall attack on, on media, uh, this sort of wholesale, you know, uh, fake news accusation. I, I don't know exactly what fighting back would entail. I do believe that the... I believe you don't get in a street fight with someone with lower standards than you, okay? Mm -hmm. And you don't get into a... It's hard to get in a war of, of fact versus denial by just presenting more facts because they just keep denying it. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that worked for me, and I don't know if it would work now, um, but the thing that worked for me is I was incredibly tepid um, about and very just sort of matter of fact and I, I never was an advocate you know I was not fighting back with the work that I did I was sort of stoically just going hey guys two plus two I know what you're saying well, I, you, you know you're putting all this stuff in scientific papers and you're saying all this stuff I just want you to know that I know you're lying and I know you're wrong or incorrect and I'm going to prove it. I had incredible confidence because of my math background. And it drove them crazy because I never said football shouldn't be played. I never said that these guys should get compensated for their injuries. Of course, there was the billion-dollar lawsuit and all that. I never said that. I just said your assumption that it's the same as the general population is wrong. Mm -hmm. It's just flat-out wrong. And there are great public health implications to that. Because when the National Football League says, hey, there's no problem with brain trauma in our sport, it trickles down, of course, to the lower levels mm -hmm. where there is an increased risk as well and different types of risks and different types of assumption of the risk and blah, blah, blah. And so we always treated it not as a professional football issue. Even when we were writing about professional football, it was in the context of public health and w w whether the public understood the risks that some of them we're undergoing and whatever you choose to do with that is your business. I never told a parent. I get asked three times a week, would you let your son play football or should I let my son play football? I have never once answered that question. And so when you ask about fighting back, I, I don't 
no, I would never in a million years want to deal with, for example, this administration. It, it, it would, my head would explode because <laughs> you can't fight illogic with logic. Yeah. Right. It doesn't work. And I'm a logic guy. So, you, you know, I just, I don't know what they should do. I do think fighting back is pretty hard. I think in some ways we just have to ride it out. Mm-hmm. I so, mean, I, I'm not saying don't do reporting and don't do hardcore reporting. I mean, the New York Times is doing an incredible job. Just do good it, work. Yes. Just do as good, you know, good, as good, don't, I don't think we should lower our standards in order to compete with, you know, these people. I, I, I just don't know if that'll work. So, you know, one of the things I, I think about are the, the consequences of, of the work that you've done. I mean, now that you, you can reflect back on it, are we, are we now at a point where, you know, are, are all football players having autopsies upon, you know, professional football players having autopsies after death to see if CTE is present? I mean, are, have there been, you know, dramatic changes in terms of the collection of additional data in, in monitoring this? Well, I think that there is a general acceptance that there are long-term risks to playing football professionally because not just the professional game, but that means you've played three or four years in college, three to eight or 10 years as a, as a youth player. And so it's that accumulation of perhaps not, you know, subconcussive blows, blah, blah, blah. We don't know exactly where these diseases come from. Um, but there, there at least is an acknowledgement that you're taking this risk. We're not sure exactly what it is, what the numerical risk is, we probably never will. But at least people know, whether they're grown men or parents making decisions for their children, that this this is out there and it's something you might want to consider. Um, a lot of people are going to do it anyway. Is has there been data on sort of a dose response that the the, the rate of CTE is lowest among the youth players and then higher among? Uh, high school only players and then ho- slightly higher among college only players and then even higher among professional players. I mean, is, does that data exist? I, I, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds and misrepresented. The Boston university group would, would, uh, have more, more full, uh, knowledge of mm-hmm. that. However, there is clearly a proportional relationship between, uh, how, how many years you play and what your risk is. Okay. Uh, in fact, I know that there's some data coming out that, um, the later you start playing football, uh, the less, uh, chance you have of having the, getting CTE. But in, you know, now we're getting down to such granular questions Mm -hmm. that our denominator really isn't that big. You know, I think it's been 115 NFL players who have been diagnosed with CTE. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know what the college and high school only numbers are, but they're far less than that. And so we're, you know, the, 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 the deeper questions we ask, uh, the the longer we're going to have to wait. Sure. But, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) when I was being told, Alan, we need more data to even say there's a risk. I knew that we didn't need more data. The data were right in front of us, and I got a chance to put it in front of millions of people. It worked. Well, that's a that's a, a great story that you've told, Alan. Thank you so very much yes. for, for being with us today. I mean, uh, and and for the work that you've done on this on this piece. 
Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter or Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.